0: Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, president and CEO of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. In this episode, I sat down with Paul Mango at Primanti Brothers in downtown Pittsburgh. I wanted to find out why this West Point Harvard graduate uh, McKinsey consultant would decide to jump into the race for governor. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Brews and Views uh, with Matt Briette, and uh, I'm in uh, the beautiful city of Pittsburgh at uh, Permane Brothers uh, enjoying, uh, well, a brew with uh, Paul Mango, who is uh, Western Pennsylvanian, uh, running for governor uh, yeah. here in the great commonwealth
1: of Pennsylvania. Paul, welcome to Brews and Views. Hey, thanks, Matt. I hope you got a salad with French fries on it because that's what Pramani Brothers is uh, pretty famous for. <laughs> that's that's right. A
0: Pittsburgh staple, uh, right? Uh, uh, Paul, um, I, you know, with bruising and Views, uh, yeah. we want to hear about the people behind the politicians, sure. uh, and uh, maybe you'll you grimace a little bit at politicians since you haven't <laughs> run for office before, and we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, but I want to talk about. Paul Mango. Who is Paul Mango? Yeah. Uh, what makes him tick? And then why the heck would he even think about yeah. getting into a big statewide race in yeah. uh, Pennsylvania? So yeah. uh, f- tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, your, your family? Sure. Um, who are you?
1: Okay, great. Well, let me let me start by saying thanks for having me on the, the show here, but also um, the bottom line is I'm a very blessed person. I'm a very blessed person and our family history in america started with my granddad coming here from italy and uh as i'm telling people he had the good sense to bypass uh alice island came straight to philadelphia how lucky am i hmm. right and then he settled up in the northeast in susquehanna county and he worked on the railroad like many immigrants did that day and it's a it's a typical story he was 14 years old by himself couldn't read couldn't write couldn't speak english didn't have a penny other than that uh, he he came, doing and came great. to
0: Penn's woods was he uh, was his intent to come to Pennsylvania or is it
1: he just ended up here by chance well he got on a boat in Naples in March of 1909 and it was headed for Philadelphia so can I only surmise that he was he was headed here and uh, had a big dream in his heart right which was mm-hmm. America and he didn't want his kids meaning my father in this case or his grandkids meaning me to be indigent farmers in Italy as we had been for hundreds of years so this guy got on a boat at age 14. I don't even let my 14 year old down the street right, without <laughs> right. watching her. This guy comes across the ocean by himself wow. and finds himself in Philadelphia. So that's how it started. And I think often of him and what he stood for and what he sought. And I'll come back to this, but I think we're losing the ability for people like me. To pursue the American dream in the future. So and,
0: Susquehanna uh, County, what like uh, seven thousand people? I mean, there's more deer than people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, there
1: was a train depot up there with uh-huh. the Erie and Lackawanna Railroad, and he was uh, he shoveled coal cinders okay. from the steam locomotives when they came in. It was a very dangerous job, by the way, because there was a couple of his colleagues who fell in and instantly incinerated. Uh, these were mm. very hot. Cinders.
0: Last uh, name Mango?
1: Last name Mango, yeah. Okay,
0: and that's an Italian uh, last name. It's
1: Italian from uh, just outside of Benevento, a place called Moyano. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where our family was for hundreds of years Okay. Uh, prior to him coming.
0: So uh, meet his wife in, in Susquehanna? In Susquehanna, okay. yes.
1: Uh, now, uh, it's a great story, though, because my grandmother was a U.S. citizen born here. Mm-hmm. And there was a rule during, for 10 or 20 years, if you were a U.S. citizen woman and you married an immigrant man, in this case from Italy, you temporarily lost your citizenship. So while my grandmother was born here, she had to become a naturalized citizen after she married my grandfather. So um, just a uh, very interesting little twist interesting. on things and how much... Uh,
0: Immigration policy has changed yeah, quite a bit. I'll
1: say, for so, sure.
0: Okay, so... Uh, Uh, Susquehanna do they stay in Susquehanna or
1: stayed until the depression okay and what happened was my dad was actually born in September of 1929 he had two older siblings that were both born in Susquehanna my uncle Joe and Aunt Mary Frances and but my dad they left Susquehanna in August of 1929 so he was conceived in Pennsylvania but born in Albany New York and uh, my my granddad got a job up there, big promotion. He got to paint rail cars, repaint them uh, instead, instead of shoveling, shoveling coal. Call okay, moving on up. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, that's where my dad was born in 1929, mm-hmm. and uh, 30 years later, in 1959, that's where I was born. So I was born in Albany, and I lived there until I was four years old, and then we moved to Syracuse, and I grew up in a small town outside of Syracuse, known as Liverpool. And uh, right in the middle of upstate New York, uh, and I'm one of five children.
0: Okay, where do you fit in the in the five? I'm number four. Okay,
1: and more important, my mother. So it's an Italian-Irish Catholic family. All right. My mother had four of us in less than four years. <laughs> no twins, uh, no twins. They
0: call those Irish twins, don't <laughs> oh they? Oh my Irish? gosh,
1: times two, I think. <laughs> but I was the fourth one, and what I learned after I had my own five children is that I was fundamentally unsupervised as a child. <laughs> uh, that's basically, maybe that's my anti-authoritarian kind of streak that I have in me. So, uh,
0: family, where do you guys grow up? You grew up in New York? Uh, yeah,
1: we grew up in uh, right outside of Syracuse in Liverpool, and um, it was a typical, I would call lower middle class. Now, what would your dad do? What would your mom do? My, my mom was a homemaker, okay. took care of the five kids. My dad worked at an electric utility called Niagara Mohawk. Uh huh. Neither of them has a college degree. Um, we grew up in a neighborhood that I always considered a safe uh, bedroom type place. Uh, I, would, I would characterize it as kind of lower middle class. My parents had this wonderful trick though, whereby even though we had nothing, they made us believe we had everything. Mm -hmm. And my mother, Mm -hmm. from the time I was age three, would tell us all, you are in America. You can do anything you want as long as you try hard enough. Mm -hmm. That was was the value, right? Mm -hmm. And we had to be home on Sundays at 4 o'clock every Sunday for a family dinner. There were no iPhones, no cell phones. It was, you are home at 4 o'clock. We don't know where you are all day long. Be home at 4 o'clock for a family dinner. I was an altar boy. And uh, in order for, to get me out of bed uh, in the summertime, my mother used to sign me up for the 6 a.m. mass. And it would be my mother, the priest, and me. <laughs> Just you're, you're training for the military. Training for yeah, the that's... military. And uh, I grew up playing sports. Uh, we'd go out in the summertime at 7 in the morning, and we wouldn't come home until yeah. 6 at yeah. night. And uh, it was stickball, it was baseball, it was basketball. And I wound up turning into a pretty darn good baseball player. Uh huh. And by the time I was 12 or so, this became pretty apparent. And uh, on championship teams, little league teams, state championship. Well, you're a pretty
0: tall guy. So were you tall at uh, age 12? To yeah, I was. Mid, I was yeah. pretty tall. Okay. I was five
1: eight or five nine. Okay. Left-handed pitcher. Uh-huh. And what happened was. As a
0: former baseball coach, I can appreciate okay. that. Yeah, Ed. there you nice. go.
1: I had a good pickoff move okay. too, by the way. Nice. But more important, when I was a freshman at Liverpool High School, 4,000 students, uh, I was the first freshman to ever play on the varsity mm. baseball team. Big surprise, right? And I went 7-0 and and threw a no-hitter. Wow. There were scouts buzzing all over the place, right? <laughs> uh, the Yankees and the, I mean, just folks wanting to get to me. My coach was pretty good at protecting me. But you can imagine the hype, even in 1974, Mm-hmm. about a freshman playing on the varsity team going 7-0 Seven, yep. and throwing a no-hit. Uh-huh. Right? So, and then that subsequent summer, we were the state champion Babe Ruth team. Uh, went to the Mid-Atlantic Regionals and wound up losing to, I think, a Canadian team or something there. But nonetheless, a uh, very, very good summer. And the next spring, uh, what I, on opening day, I chipped my elbow. Oh, no. Tragedy, yeah. right? Yeah. As a 15 year old kid, or 16, I think, just turned 16, uh, I was throwing pitches I shouldn't have been throwing. Mm. You know, there were no yeah. sports medicine right, experts right. back then. Had this wonderful overhand curveball that looked like a fastball to the last second. Great strikeout pitch. I was striking out 14, 16 batters a game. I shouldn't have been throwing it. Yeah. So it chipped, it, it had, literally, the orthopedic surgeon showed me the x ray, a little rice sized chip that the ligament pulled away from my elbow. And he said, I remember this, this was in 1975, and he said, listen, you have to sit out the rest of the year. And I'm like crying, yeah. right? And I remember riding home with my mother at age 15 saying, Mom, my life is over. I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> it was the best thing. Oh, the thing. world
0: of 15-year-olds, <laughs> right? right. Yeah.
1: It was the best thing that ever happened to mm. me. Mm. And the reason is, for the first time in my life, I started thinking about and got serious about college. Mm. I really wasn't serious about it before then, and I came back and I won another 20 games in high school, but I knew it was not the same. Mm. You could just tell when yeah. you have throwing a 90 mile an hour fastball and it goes down to 86 or 85, just didn't have the zip, right? I wound up pitching at West Point, uh, so I continued to play there mm-hmm. at least uh, two years, and um, but that was it for my baseball career. But um, just just kind of.
0: So was West Point an aspiration for you? I mean, were you saying, I want to go join the Army? I want to make a career in the military?
1: Yeah, so my dad, when I was a child, my dad was a National Guard officer. And even though he didn't have a college degree back then, they let you be an officer. Mm. And he got into a special forces unit. And when I was seven years old in 1966, he went off to airborne school. He was old. He was 36. That's old to be going Mm. through airborne school gone three weeks, comes back at his green beret on, jump boots, shiny jump boots, lost 20 pounds, <laughs> short haircut. And I'm like, who is this guy when he walked in? I didn't know who he was, but I said, wow. A huge impression on me, right? Uh, and he always had little military things around the house from his National Guard duty, and I, I have pictures of myself and you know whatever it is, third grade, wearing a uniform, the class, and so you knew there was an influence there. But what really influenced me was, Uh, I, as I mentioned, I was a freshman on the varsity baseball team and one of my older brothers who was three years older than me, one of his classmates wound up going to West Point. Mm. And he asked me to come down and visit when I was a junior in high school. And he said, I want you to talk to the baseball coach while you're down here because he knew I was, you know, pretty good. Mm -hmm. So I went down stayed a weekend in the spring of 1976.
0: This is at Hudson High, as the Navy affectionately calls yeah, it. Yeah, I have yet. a more
1: derogatory <laughs> term for it that I won't use on radio, but uh, that the cadets often used uh, an acronym. But, yeah, uh, I've
0: heard it canoe you. As it was yeah, one, uh, it's uh, even a little a North worse North than North.
1: that. Okay, uh, but anyway, I, I love West Point, right? But um, yeah, so I visited in the spring of 1976, and I said, man, this is unbelievable. I looked at these, these cadets. Now, they, they were older to me at the time. Yeah so organized, so structured, so polite, so squared away, everything they did. And I said, I'd really like to be that. And it wasn't, you know, at the time when you're 17, you don't think about it as, you know, this is about leading soldiers in the combat. You think about it as these guys were role models. Uh, And they were only a couple years older than me. And I knew enough about myself to say, I'm not gonna on my own become that structured, that disciplined, I I really need a kind of an external forced doing that. That's pretty
0: and, mature to recognize that.
1: Yeah. And uh, so we started applying. And of course, my dad was head over heels, right? Like, oh, my gosh, yeah. if you really want to do yeah. this, I'll help you. And um, I wound up becoming the 10th alternate of my congressman, you know, that you have to get a nomination right. from a congressman or a senator. Mm-hmm. And one by one, the others failed the uh, medical exam or decided they wanted to go to some other college. and. Uh, got a call and uh, it was probably, I'm just guessing late March or early April of 1977, saying hey, uh, if you still want to go to West Point, you're in. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is outstanding, <laughs> right? And uh, three months later, I was standing on the plane at West Point, raising my right hand, uh, pledging allegiance to the country and to my classmates. So uh, it's so wonderful. You,
0: you spend four years at West Point. Yes. Uh, anything exciting happened there?
1: Well, I met my wife there. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I met my wife there. Yes. So she's a cadet as well, same year? She's a year behind me. Okay. And there's no fraternization when, uh-huh. when uh, anyone is a plebe or a freshman. So when I was a junior, she was a sophomore. That's when we first started dating. Uh, so that was 1979. We've been together ever since. Okay. Uh, we got married in 1982 and been married 35 years. So so
0: you graduate from West Point. Uh, What do you head off to do?
1: Yeah. Uh, So that was 1981. And by the way, Ronald Reagan handed me my diploma. It was only his second real appearance after he had been shot. He was shot in March Hmm. and then he was out for a while and then he appeared at Notre Dame and then West Point. Okay. Uh, And he gave about a 45 minute address, but there's only two things I remember, which was, um, thank you for serving your country. I'm going to make you proud of it again. That's, that's what yeah. stuck with me. Uh-huh. Right? Anyway, so uh, at West Point, it's a meritocracy. It's the ultimate meritocracy, and you choose your assignment by where you finish in the class. And literally, um, they had us in an auditorium before graduation, lined up, sitting down, I should say, in order of merit. And the Department of the Army sent down about 950 slots, and you'd stand up and you'd say, I want to I go to Hawaii, or I want to go to Italy, or I want to go wherever. And I chose to go to Fort Bragg, uh, North Carolina. And that was the 82nd Airborne Division. As you know, a very famous yes, unit indeed. that's had a wonderful history of success. And um, I was a field artillery officer. So the cannons, mm-hmm. dealt with the cannons. And I went down there after my officer basic course. And, It was a wonderful, wonderful assignment. The most motivated soldiers, uh, the mission of the 82nd Airborne Division at the time was be anywhere in the world in 48 hours. So what that meant was from a training and readiness perspective, you had to be able to fight in the mountains, in the jungles, in the deserts, in the snow, in the heat. And that's what we did all the time was train. And I remember in January of 1982, flying up to Alaska for six weeks of winter warfare training. Staying in tents when at <laughs> night it was minus 40 <laughs> degrees and you couldn't, couldn't have a stove on because uh-huh. it was too dangerous, you know, burning mm-hmm. down the tent and so forth. And you learned how to survive in minus 40 degree weather. Wow. And they taught us all the techniques.
0: So Pittsburgh is easy. It's a, it's a beach here. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. I've never had any
1: problem with the cold weather here. But, you know, and then we'd hop in the plane and we'd fly to Germany and jump, you know, parachute in and stay there for two weeks for mm-hmm. an exercise or wherever, and it was just wonderful training, wonderful soldiers, uh, unbelievable assignment. And then my second assignment was in Europe. Uh, we had 300,000 soldiers in Germany. And you're married
0: at this time? When when, uh, this is, when you're...
1: I, I wasn't married. Okay. I got married. Yes, I got married in the latter part of my 82nd Airborne Division assignment. Okay. But my wife had to go through officer basic course and a bunch of other things. So in 1983, we went over to Germany. And... Um, Spent, uh, whatever it was, two and a half years over there. Wonderful assignment, 300,000 soldiers before the Berlin Wall fell. Mm. Spent a little time behind the Iron Curtain. Mm. And uh, as I said in my uh, opening uh, uh, kind of an announcement for this candidacy, I said, you've passed through Checkpoint Charlie, you see stores without goods, uh, you see a government without restraint, and you see a people without hope. Mm. And I got a good dose of what socialism does. And it, what it does is it creates a sense of hopelessness. And that's what I saw in the eyes of those East Germans. And they would look at us with such envy. Mm. They'd look at the Americans mm. with such envy and such hope that they could someday be part of Western civilization, so to speak.
0: I tell you, that uh, we've had a number of folks who have lived uh, in other countries, uh, from India, uh, from Hungary. They come and they come to work for freedom because yeah. they know what freedom lost right. looks like. Uh, right. And people that haven't been out of this country and yeah. been to third world countries that lack our freedoms, yeah. really can't appreciate We really take it for granted here yeah. in America.
1: Yeah, we do. Uh, boy, I, I, I got a good dose of what the other side looks like and uh, made me appreciate everything even all the more, right? So we were in Germany and um, I applied to Harvard Business School. So you can imagine my dad and mom would never been, don't have a college degree. The only thing they ever wanted to do in their whole lives was get their kids through college. You can imagine the call home. Hey, Dad, I got into Harvard Business School. (laughs) (laughs) The only guy in the world happier than me Uh was my dad. And um, so we left Germany in April, May of 1986, and I entered Harvard Business School in uh, August of 1986. And I remind people that if you know anything about Boston and Cambridge, the business school is on the right bank of the Charles River. The undergraduate Harvard <laughs> College is on the left bank of the Charles uh, River. Appropriately so, uh, uh, cited, yes. So I stayed on the right bank. And it was a great, it's just a great time. Uh, you know, at West Point, it was, they taught one, you, you did your homework and you were quizzed on it the next day. Every mm-hmm. day you were quizzed in virtually every course, right? At Harvard, it was really about a critical thinking. It was about synthesis. It was about listening. Um, A good part of one's grade was could you string together after a 90-minute discussion a summary of what your classmates talked about? Mm. Totally different set of skills, right? Where there was no right and wrong. It wasn't a physics problem. It wasn't a chemistry problem. It wasn't a calculus problem. It was about business and judgment and leadership. And a fascinating uh, experience uh, for me. Mm. And uh, while I was there, I had some... uh, students in my section. And Harvard Business School is built around nine sections of 80 or 90 folks each. And you're very, very close to your section mates. And uh, some of them were from this firm, McKinsey and Company. And similar to the story I told about my dad, you know, uh, 30 years prior, um, I saw these and I said, wow, these guys are really squared away. These McKinsey guys seem to be uh, really on top of things, and bright, and informed, and structured, and logical. So when McKinsey came on campus, I interviewed with him, just kind of mm. on a whim, or mm. uh, I went to the you know the recruiting uh, meetings, and then wound up interviewing with him. I got an offer, and um, we had been all over the world. We had lived in five or six places, my wife and I. How many and, kids at this time? Oh, I forgot. <laughs> I, <laughs> you our forgot. First, <laughs> our first daughter Amelia was born in January of '88. Okay. So. Um, we just had her, and we said, listen, we'll take this offer, but we need to go to a no-drama city. We had lived in Chicago for a summer internship the summer before. Uh-huh. They had an earthquake. They had a, <laughs> a mayoral scandal because he was at the food festival. They charged too much, which was a tax, and he never got authorization for it. Bad traffic. We just wanted to go to a place that was no drama, and they said, how about Pittsburgh? Uh-huh. And we said, well, we've never been there before, but mm-hmm. let's go take a look. So my wife and I flew here with our four-week-old uh, first daughter hmm. uh, on a snowy weekend in February of 1988 and fell in love with the place. Mm-hmm. And we took the job offer on the spot, and after graduation in June, we moved here. So in and the Commonwealth, then almost then had, 30 years. then uh, had many
0: more kids, correct?
1: Yeah, so uh, Amelia was born in January of 88. Uh, and she is uh, just a—she's— a wonderful, independent young woman, strong-willed. Uh, har- I'm shocked from, you a, know, two parents from uh, <laughs> West A rower BYU. at Harvard. That's what she was, <laughs> Okay. Right? Uh, she used to call herself a uh, red dot in a sea of blue, <laughs> 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 so uh, very, very talented young lady. She's out in uh, Silicon Valley okay. right now. Hope, our second one, was born in uh, March of 1991, and uh, she is the one who went to West Point. So she followed mom and dad, the West Point, uh-huh. graduated in 2014. She's in South Korea in the air defense wow. artillery. So okay. doing, doing great things for us. And then our third daughter, Reed, uh, went to Columbia and she is in financial services in uh, New York City, mm-hmm. uh, doing great things. Our fourth child, uh, well, Reed was born in 1993. Charlotte was born in 1996. She's at Seton Hill, right here in Western Pennsylvania. Good little Catholic uh, school out in Greensburg. And Eve, my baby, is 14, and she just started high school a couple weeks ago. Uh-huh. So we raised all of them here uh, in a wonderful environment. Uh, Pittsburgh has just been everything and more we ever wanted. It's such a close-knit community. It is a community that cares. Uh, it's, at least for us, it was a safe and nurturing community, and we thank our neighbors all the time for uh, creating that environment for our kids.
0: So West Point, 82nd, Airborne, uh, Harvard, uh, McKinsey, uh, uh, world-renowned consulting firm. Uh, you want to be governor, and probably the biggest qualification for that is having five girls. Yes, uh, I mean, out of all the things you've done, Paul, uh, having five daughters, having three myself, I I, I, I can somewhat understand uh, yeah. uh, or sympathize. Yeah. Um, so uh, you you had a, you built a, a very large practice at McKinsey, uh, correct? Yeah. Let me talk about yeah.
1: McKinsey a bit. It's it is a unbelievably blessed and talented firm. It's it's a private partnership. It's a global private partnership. It's not publicly traded. And what that means is the partners can get together and basically do what they want, not what Wall Street wants them to do. And as a result of that, McKinsey is a fantastically generous firm that invests a tremendous amount back in the community. And this gets the partners and everyone at the firm very excited about working for a place that not only does well, but does a lot of good. And at McKinsey, we had a saying is you make your own McKinsey. Listen, we're going to put you in an environment where there's very talented folks, a lot of very exciting things to do. Uh, We'll give you resources, but you need to step up to leadership and create something. You need to create something. And for me, um, starting in the mid-1990s, that was healthcare. And just, uh, Hmm. I I, I can't talk too much about any of my clients because I'm prohibited from, but ironically, my first client ever was Rick Scott. Hmm. Uh, Rick governor Scott was Florida, a big right. hospital executive yes. in the mid-90s, yeah. the most feared executive in the entire healthcare industry, mm. a great guy, a true gentleman, extraordinarily talented. Now he's the governor of Florida, and uh, he's been quite helpful to me. Huh. A, just, a, just a side story on Rick Scott, uh, I always have to tell the story. His dad was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division of World War II. Huh. He participated in all five airborne operations that the 82nd Airborne Division participated in, in World War II. Wow. That is almost unique. I think it may be unique, yeah. but anyway, great guy.
0: Lots of connections there. So, yeah. so uh, let's fast forward yeah. here to, uh, you built a successful career in McKinsey. Can yeah. I just say
1: three yeah. quick things about McKinsey? There's three things I did at McKinsey. I built, I led a team, and I want to stress that, mm-hmm. I led a team that built a half a billion dollar healthcare business out of nothing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Took 15 to 20 years it's thriving it's huge now led a team did not do it by myself okay
0: and, and so you've decided to leave that or you resigned uh, from your position earlier this year here in 2017 yes uh, I did uh, all because you want to be a politician now I mean of all things Paul yeah uh, army <laughs> Harvard McKinsey uh, politician
1: yeah I mean what what were you bit by something no this this is <laughs> I first of all I considered a return to public service uh, Um, and it was very, very difficult to leave McKinsey, very difficult to leave. It was a very inspiring environment and a very comfortable environment for me. But I was asked to go to the federal government twice, once Health and Human Services by Mike Levitt back in 2006, and once uh, a call from the Obama White House in Mm. 2014. Can you leave McKinsey for a year and turn around the Veterans Administration? Mm. Interesting phone call. I was a healthcare specialist at McKinsey. But really, I was a change management expert. That's what I really did. So they called, and I said, listen, uh, I will never turn down an opportunity to serve my country, particularly if veterans are involved. So I went down, and I actually talked to them. And the first thing I said is, it's not gonna take a year, it's gonna take a decade, because I know a little bit about change leadership. You cannot change to the degree it needs to change the Veterans Administration Mm -hmm. in one year. And a second, I said, I just want to let you know, before you get embarrassed, I'm like a big time Republican. I've donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to Republicans to win back our Senate and win back the House and and hopefully to have a Republican president. I'm
0: sure they knew that, though.
1: That's exactly Uh. what I heard. We did our homework. We know that. So I just quickly went into, okay, let me let me tell you, the one thing I've learned in 25 years at McKinsey is to test for preconditions for change. Are you really ready to change? So I asked four or five questions. Will the president give me 30 minutes a month? That's a fraction of a percent of his time. You told me it's one of his top three priorities. Will he confront the public sector unions who are restricting change Mm -hmm. in the VA? Will he confront the congressmen who just want a VA hospital in their districts for employment, even though it may be failing? Mm. Will he think about a public-private partnership? We have the best, most capable healthcare system in the world. They could solve this wait time problem tomorrow. So uh, one of the White House staffers, I won't tell you who it is, looked at me and said, if we could guarantee you that, we wouldn't need a turnaround guy. And I said, well, if you can't, we're not gonna get change. Yeah. So that, um, those were two brushes with the government. Mm. And then uh, people started asking me about running against Bob Casey. I have a lot of friends in the Senate. Tom Cotton, Joni Ernst, Rob Portman, Pat Toomey, uh, Todd Young, who just got elected a good veteran. He's a Naval Academy grad, but I put that aside. <laughs> And it was like, hey, how about running against Bob Casey? And I said, guys, no offense, but when you test for the preconditions for impact that a freshman senator is going to have in D.C., I come up blank, right? And then this idea of governor came about. And I I went out and talked to seven or eight governors, and they told me two things. I talked to Tom Ridge. I talked to Tom Corbett. I talked to Rick Scott. I talked to Bobby Jindal. I talked to Doug Burgum. Um, I'm missing one or two. Uh, Anyway, the point is... Uh, They all said the same thing. Oh, I talked to Charlie uh, uh, in Massachusetts. He used to be in the healthcare industry when they, too. I forgot his last name. Sorry. Uh, They said the same thing. They said this is the best job you'll ever have, and the amount of impact you can have is substantial. And uh, by the way, can we trade you Pennsylvania for what we have? Uh, They are so enthusiastic about the potential of Pennsylvania. That's what they said. Very interesting, right? So, um, I decided that If I was gonna do something in public service, this would be it. My wife and I talked, and uh, she's funny. She goes, go pursue your dream, please. And I'm like, this is not a dream. It's a bit of a nightmare at times, but it it is a return to public service. And we decided that, you know, um, if folks like us who have been given so much, you know, to whom much is given, Mm -hmm. much is expected. If folks like us don't step up, we lose the right to complain. And we'd been complaining a lot. Uh, We've been given a lot to complain about. Yes, we've been given Uh, a lot to complain. uh, But, I mean,
0: actually people jumping into the fray uh, is exactly what we need. And people uh, who uh, this may not be the uh, easiest path that uh, I suspect you could retire and enjoy a sunset view or golf uh, uh, every afternoon. So I do commend you for uh, jumping into the fray because I think you're well aware of what you're jumping into. You have uh, a millionaire as governor right now that spent uh, 10 million bucks of his own money uh, the first go around, probably willing to do something similar. Uh, You also have someone who's long ago announced, uh, Scott Wagner, uh, who's also talking about putting millions of dollars into his own race. Uh, He himself being, uh, you know, a self-made man. Yeah. uh, all these things suggest paul this this is a, this is a suicide mission. This is you know why you haven 't been in politics before yeah. uh, you 're not known statewide, uh, and you 've got kind of two millionaires uh, running against you in a way sure well, uh, why would you do something like that?
1: Well, first of all, I say bring it on <laughs> uh, hey listen uh, i 've had to climb a lot of mountains in my life this this won 't be the steepest one uh, that 's point number one. We bring a very unique profile to this race. You've just heard a story. Uh, There's no one with the leadership training that I've had in this race. There's no one with the business experience of bringing change, transformational change, to large-scale organizations. No one else has that. And I think you heard. There's no one else who has the obligation to serve, Mm -hmm. right? You heard a story of a guy who is been unbelievably blessed, right? A granddad who came here with nothing, parents who don't have college degree, and I get, as you just articulated, to go to West Point and the Harvard Business School, serve in the 82nd Airborne Division, have a wonderful career at McKinsey, five wonderful daughters and a wonderful wife. Um, that is- Sounds
0: like retirement time, not to jump into the end into the, into the, into the politics.
1: I go out there and people tell me three things. They feel very insecure about their economic futures. They are frightened about their children because of the drug overdose epidemic. They are making trade-offs between putting food on their table and buying health care insurance. And we live in a state that has, in a commonwealth that has so much potential. And I put these two next to each other. And I say, how can it be that so many people are suffering when we live in a state that is so blessed with assets, the assets that we have? And I come to a very simple conclusion. We lack the leadership in Harrisburg necessary to turn our wonderful blessings into prosperity for all Pennsylvanians. How can someone who's been given as much as I've been given not step up and try to fill that gap? So that's, that's how we came to the conclusion. So, so I mean, Tom Wolfe will make the case,
0: look, I've run successful businesses, uh, I'm, I'm a PhD from MIT, uh, yeah, po- political science. but. Uh, that he would say, "Look, I'm the leader Pennsylvania needs. Why are you a better leader or the person that could do the job?" That, yeah. well, I don't. We'll have to assess whether he's doing that job or not. But uh, yeah. what what is it that you think makes you unique? Not only with Tom Wolf, but even contrast yourself with uh, Scott Wagner.
1: Yeah, let's okay. Let's let's compare me to Tom Wolf, okay? And you can you can extrapolate and compare me to anyone uh, based on this. No one else has had the business experience that I've had not only building a half a billion dollar business with a team, but bringing change for 25 years to large institutions that had lost their way with their customers or had become too culturally restricted to change. Mm-hmm. That sounds like Harrisburg to me. That's number one. No one else has had the leadership training. My goodness, West Point and then leading soldiers in the 82nd Airborne Division. No one else brings that. And then from an ideological standpoint. I don't care what business experiences Tom Wolfe had, the guy is a liberal progressive socialist, right? More taxes, more spending, more redistribution, more dependence, and more debt. You could be the best leader in the world. That is a failed ideology <laughs> that is taking us down a black hole. I think the differences are so obvious. Uh, our only task is to make sure Twelve point seven million Pennsylvanians understand the contrast, but don't go down the hole with them. Yes, yeah. And compare me to anyone. I don't think anyone brings to the race those three things: the the intense leadership training and experience, the business experience in bringing change to large institutions. Uh, And the ideology, if you will, which is, for me, limited government, free enterprise, and individual responsibility. I talk about it all the time. So when you apply
0: those things, Paul, what are the policy issues that you think, boy, day one, we got to tackle this, this, and this. Yeah. uh, And that uh, these are the must-haves if we really, truly want to turn Pennsylvania around.
1: Yeah. First and foremost, by a long shot, is... We have to establish the conditions for robust economic growth. No one is talking about that in Harrisburg. And we have a number of characteristics in the Commonwealth that are actually inhibiting business growth, inhibiting job creators. Mm -hmm. One, the highest corporate tax rate effectively in the country. Okay, 9.99, okay, Iowa has 10. It's 10 in my book, okay? A deep regulatory state that is oppressive. I mean, every business leader in the state is complaining about how long and how lethargic the DEP is, right, or uh, PENDOT, or Department of Labor and Industry. That's and that's two. a
0: that's a, a statement of fact uh, when it comes to the number of days it re- is required yeah. relative to other states that's that right. deal with the same issues. It's uh, it is it is complete incompetence is what it's it is. Disgraceful. or it's uh, intentional disruption, uh, which yeah. I think it could be a maybe a combination of both, which is really dangerous.
1: Right. Uh, and I do think it's, I think there's a cultural issue there that yes. we have to break through absolutely. Third, we have seen our skilled labor force evaporate with 300,000 manufacturing jobs in two decades. We need to reconstitute that, okay? And I'm a big believer in vocational training and bringing dignity back to the trades. Fourth, we lack a first world infrastructure. We cannot have a first world globally economic economically competitive economy with a third world infrastructure. And fifth, we do not have a chief marketing officer. That's supposed to be the governor's job. We do not have a cheerleader that is expressing uh, the benefits of doing business in Pennsylvania to those all around the world. If we can do those things, all of which are in our grasp, we'll have a 4 to 5% a year growth economy. That's, that's priority number one. Two, drug overdose epidemic. 100 Pennsylvanians a week, 5,000 a year. It's getting worse. Mm. I don't have the answer to this sitting before you, but what I do know is there's two or three things missing. One is a sense of urgency, 100 a week. I don't sense the urgency coming out of our chief executive, period. Two, a very narrow view of what the solution is. Yes, do we overprescribe? Absolutely. Do we need an integrated pharmacy database? Absolutely, but this is a social issue beyond a clinical issue and it's a criminal issue. So we're taking a very narrow view of it. And third, Harrisburg can't solve this problem. I think the problem can only be solved in local communities because this is not one epidemic. It's scores of epidemics. It expresses itself very differently in local communities. We need to re-engage local communities, resource them, structure them to go through a process to really solve these problems. So that would be number two. And there's three other issues real quickly. Healthcare can't have premiums going up 20 to 30% a year. Education, I have a very simple standard. Are our children prepared for meaningful work in a globally competitive economy and are they on their way to being great citizens? And in many of our schools, neither of those is the end product. Neither of those is the end product. And then fifth, just physical solvency in the government. Those are the five issues, economic growth, opioid overdose, healthcare, education, physical solvency. And I know I make that sound easy, but when, who's focusing yeah, on those? Right? How come no one's talking about those? Right? I mean, I just well, I don't we, we do give it.
0: a lot of talk to those, Paul, in Harrisburg. Yeah. Uh, just people don't do anything about it right. uh, because what's required is to get a hundred and two, twenty six, yeah. and one.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and that I think is one of the biggest challenges that uh, most people from the outside, if you yeah. will, uh, d- cannot re- fully comprehend. They yeah. just think, oh, if they just do their job in Harrisburg, well. It takes a lot of leadership. Yeah. It takes collaboration. Yeah. That comes through relationship. Right. In many ways. Uh, because in order to get to 102 votes, um, you have to persuade right. quite a few people that have every right to say, I represent 60,000 people in sure, my community, and I'm just as important as every one of those other representatives. Sure. How do you see yourself not having the kind of relationship that you haven't been in Harrisburg forever? Yeah. At all, right? I, I think I that's going to help. Yeah. Okay. So tell me how you will then Because this is what Look, Tom Wolfe didn't have any political experience, um, yep. but he hasn't done much to rally leadership to follow him. Uh, Tom Corbett didn't either. Uh, in fact, the relationships he had was locking colleagues up. So (laughs) I think he started at a distinct disadvantage. How are you going to overcome what is uh, just a time issue? You you haven't spent time with a lot of these
1: folks. So one is we've already begun the first step on the change journey and that's restore the dream. So we put out what I believe is a compelling, accurate vision and plan to restore prosperity and the dream to the Commonwealth. I have never in my 25 years at McKinsey and my five years in the Army, I never saw a positive change begin without a definition and a description of where we wanted to go Mm -hmm. and where we wanted to wind up. No wonder they're having problems establishing priorities in Harrisburg. No one has set a vision under which you can prioritize things, right? Governor Wolf hasn't done that. Jobs that pay, that's code for raising the minimum wage. Schools that teach, that's code for paying off the pensions and the teachers unions and government that works. That's the DEP (laughs) denying permits. That's right. That's his vision for the Commonwealth. We have a vision of prosperity and growth. That's the first step in any change journey. Okay, that's number one. Two, how a governor spends his time. Has to role model the change he seeks, right? And that gets back to, am I spending time with business leaders? Am I promoting the benefits of Pennsylvania outside the state? Am I going to the graduation of the vocational schools to say these are dignified careers? that you all can have. You don't have to go to a four-year college and get $100,000 in debt to live in your parents' basement. You can earn $65,000 a year coming out of a vocational trade. How a leader spends his time, who he convenes. Who who he convenes sends a signal, right? Um, And it's it's part of the problem-solving process. These are all things that any sound change leadership process has, and I see none of them. Now, we have one other big advantage today that my predecessors may not have had. And that is we can communicate faster, better, and more effectively with the general public than ever before. And I don't think just establishing relationships with the legislators is gonna do the trick. What I believe is what you just said, each of them has 60,000 folks, right? That they have to be responsive to. I think it's time we started engaging those 60,000 folks in real facts about what's happening. Tom Wolf, the education governor, Increased funding, 15%. You know as well as I do where that money went. 71% went to pensions. Another 8 to 10% went to health care benefits. None of it's going to our children. I don't know how many Pennsylvanians know that, but we're going to let them know that. Mm-hmm. There's a billion dollars of real estate taxes being transferred effectively from our suburban school districts to our urban and rural school districts. And you have the suburban folks wondering why our real estate taxes are so high. Well, we're going to let people know about that, Right. We're gonna let them know that the, that the pension reform, in quotation marks, that just took place didn't address the $80 billion hole. Is it a step in the right direction? Absolutely, but it's misleading in the sense that we still have an $80 billion hole that we're gonna to have to fund. I think as soon as we can engage with some salient facts, the greater population, they are going to do the right thing with their legislatures in terms of legislators in terms of communications.
0: So you've been full time on the campaign. Is it? Were you taking this message right now, Paul? Who is hearing what you are, yeah. what you have to say we're, in your case to be governor?
1: Yeah. Uh, we are all over. We're talking to business leaders. We're talking to state committee folks. We're talking to uh, regular citizens. Uh, we're talking to law enforcement officers. We're talking to EMS folks. We're in the bottom of coal mines. I was in a quarry uh, last week. I've been in steel mills, Uh, I've been in marine terminals. Uh, We are are sending the message far and wide and uh, we're also on social media uh, and very much expressing these same messages. We have, I don't know, 45,000 folks following us now and six weeks ago we had 5,000. So we're building a tremendous amount of momentum in cyberspace as well. we're, we are propagating these messages far and wide, every place we go, physically and uh, from a from a social media perspective. And if folks want to hear about your Restore the Dream yeah. uh, and
0: more about your campaign, where should yeah. they go?
1: www.mango4pa.com. And that's F-O-R, not the number four. And you can go on the site and, and there is a uh, place there where you can, we will... Uh, if you give us your email address, we will email you a copy of uh, Restore the Dream. And again, it's the, we're the only candidate in the race that has articulated in writing a vision and a plan. And you'll see the details of what we intend to do. You may not agree with 100% of it, uh, but if you agree with 100% of it, I'll probably not be your next governor. <laughs> and I've told you that too, man. right? So, uh, so, uh But uh, we're very proud of it, and we're going to execute Well,
0: Paul, I appreciate you joining me here at Primanti Brothers, uh, downtown uh, Pittsburgh, on Brews and Views. Uh, And uh, I'm sure we'll have uh, an opportunity to follow up uh, sometime in the the near future.
1: Hey, thanks, Matt. And thanks for all you're doing, uh, because you're really bringing the right conservative uh, mindset to uh, folks who may waver a bit. And we appreciate that.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, Take care, and we'll see you again soon. Okay, thanks. been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners' Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.